What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 18 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast is recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode of the ERRR. ERRR listeners, today is an exciting day because it's the first time that we've had a guest onto the ERRR in response to another ERRR episode. As many of you will be aware, last episode we spoke to Professor Adrian Simpson as he took a no-holds-barred critique to the meta-analysis, suggesting that the oft-quoted effect size is maybe not all it's cracked up to be. As a quick summary, we discussed with Adrian three factors that he suggested can skew effect sizes to such an extent that we should be very, very careful when comparing them across studies. These three factors were unequal comparison groups, range restriction, and measurement design. In discussing the cumulative effects of these factors, Adrian proposed that using effect sizes to rank the effectiveness of educational interventions is a category error. This is because the factors that play into creating an effect size often have just as much, if not more, to do with the design of the study than they do with the efficacy of the intervention in question. In sum, Adrian suggested that effect sizes are a better measure of a study's clarity than the impact of an educational initiative. Now, after I'd locked in Adrian Simpson for the podcast, I had a bit of a feeling that the interview with him was going to cause a bit of a stir. And I thought that a few people in this area might also want to have their say on the issue. I was right. And since the podcast's release, the Education Endowment Foundation in the UK and Evidence for Learning here in Australia have partnered up to write an article in response to the Adrian Simpson episode. And I'll be linking to that article in the show notes. But I also thought that John Hattie might weigh in on the discussion too. So I reached out to Hattie, who I'm sure most listeners would have heard of by now, and invited him to respond to the episode with Adrian. John's response? Count me in. If you haven't listened to episode 17 with Adrian Simpson, I highly recommend having a listen prior to continuing with this episode. I found the discussion with Adrian to be highly stimulating and very interesting, and the idea is that listening to these two interviews together will give listeners a more rounded understanding of the different views held on this contentious issue. So if you haven't listened to the episode with Adrian Simpson as yet, please pause this episode now and jump back into episode 17 with Adrian Simpson. And now on to the usual introduction for this episode's guest. Laureate Professor John Hattie's work is internationally acclaimed. His influential book, Visible Learning, is believed by many to be the world's largest evidence-based study into the factors that improve student learning. Hailed by the Times Education Supplement as Teaching's Holy Grail, Hattie's book involved more than 80 million students from around the world and brought together 50,000 smaller studies. Visible Learning found that positive teacher-student interactions is the most important factor in effective teaching. Since 2011, Professor Hattie has been Director of the Melbourne Educational Research Institute at the University of Melbourne. He is also the Chair of the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership, through which he provides national leadership in promoting excellence so that teachers and school leaders have maximum impact. Professor Hattie has been awarded the New Zealand Order of Merit, has published over 500 papers and supervised, get this, 200 PhD students. That's a lot of students. 
Now, I know that about 40% of ERRR listeners are based in countries outside of Australia, so I wanted to flag a couple of terms that will come up today that you may not have heard of before. Gonski 2.0. Gonski 2.0 is a recently released government commission review into education in Australia. It was led by a chap by the name of David Gonski, and as with most reviews, it has educators divided over the value of its recommendations. Exploring these recommendations in detail is beyond the scope of the podcast today, but for those interested in finding out more, I highly recommend listening to the Teachers Education Review Podcast, episode 112, Perspectives on Gonski. Therein you'll find a thorough treatment of this new report. Also, towards the end of this podcast, I asked John what he thinks about the Templestowe model. Templestowe is a school in Melbourne, Victoria, that has individualised learning plans for each student, no school bell, no year levels, staff selection by students, and curriculum decided by students as well. So that's what we're referring to when we mention the Templestowe model. And finally, about halfway through the interview with John Hattie, my computer froze and the primary recording mic stopped working. Luckily, I had a backup mic running in case this happened, but what this means for listeners is that the sound quality will reduce for about five or so minutes in the middle of the interview. But it's still more than clear enough to hear the discussion in detail. So, following a record-breaking intro to this podcast, let's jump straight into this episode of the ERRR with Laureate Professor John Hattie. John Hattie, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. It's great to be here talking with you, Ollie. Fantastic. All right. The first question we usually ask people when they come into the ERRR is, if you're at a party and someone says, oh, hi, John, what is it that you do? What's your answer? I say I'm a teacher at the university. And if they go any further, they usually ask about what, say, in the area of education. Then they usually say, oh, you teach teachers. And I say, no, not quite. I do more of the research behind the scenes. So I'm one of those nerds that does that kind of stuff. And that usually ends the conversation. They go and choose someone else to talk to. Got it. Got it. I'm curious a bit about your history because I believe you were a teacher at a time and I'm, I'm aware that- I'm still a teacher, Ollie. Of a classroom teacher in a, in a school and not everyone knows that. So I'm just really curious about your progression from- even late years of uni till today, you know, within a reasonable time frame. Sure. I was brought up in a small country town and I started my apprenticeship as a painter and paper hanger. And I realised after a year that I didn't even have the few skills that you needed to do that. And I just wanted to get out. And at that time, they paid you to be a teacher. So this is a good lark. So I applied, got in, left the little town. And from there, I also did university at the same time because at that time they were separate. I taught for a year at an intermediate, which is an upper primary school, and then I had uh, nine months to a year in a high school, and that's the total of real classroom teaching I've had. Got it. And then from there, did a PhD and stayed in the university sector ever since. But I knew that if it, university didn't work, I could go back to it because I really loved it. Got it. So what precipitated the movement out of the classroom for you, or should, should I say into the university? Chance. One morning, I was Saturday morning, I was walking to my school and the professor head of department was driving along and his fresh American car stopped and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going out to school. He said, I'll give you a lift. I said, it's miles out of your way. He said, no problem. And he talked about what I was going to do next year and I was going to move to the North Island of New Zealand and be a teacher. He said, no, you're not. Come in on Monday and you'll have a job. I'll give you a job at the university. And then he said, you've got to go on and do a PhD, etc. So he saw something in me I didn't see in myself and I'm forever grateful to Richard Barham for doing that. It was my career has been by accident. There you go. So you, you knew Richard beforehand, I assume. He didn't just assess oh, yeah. you during yeah. the car ride. No, 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 no. He didn't pick me up on the streets that way. It was a very small department and he was the brand new professor, super god at the time. 
and worked out very well. Right. Now, I'm curious as to your movement into the area of the meta-analysis. I, in your forthcoming paper that you sent to me, I read that you were actually in the room the day that Gene Glass yes. kind of revealed the idea of the meta-analysis. Could, so, could you tell us about, one, that experience, and two, how that led into you working in that area? Yeah, I was a graduate student doing a PhD, and as you do, you go to the major conferences to work out what the game is. And I went to AERA in San Francisco, and Gene Glass was the president, and he gave this presentation, which for me was quite stunning because you know, as a person doing measurement and statistics, what he was suggesting was unbelievably simple and powerful. And like many things in my career, the best way to know more about it is to do one. So we did one of the very first meta-analyses and to try and understand how it was working. And from there, I've done many, many more, but it was that notion of how do you synthesize past literature? Because all the biases of how people select when they write the traditional review, he, Gene Glass, brought to the fore. And he came up with a simple alternative. And what was fascinating is the first two he ever did was one was on class size and the other was on the benefits of psychotherapy. And just seeing how it branched out and I think we can be very proud in our discipline that it started in education. It has grown dramatically in medicine, but it came out of our discipline. I was very interested to read that as well because it was my understanding that it came out of medicine, but you suggested it was oh. the other way around. Cool. And interesting to hear that Gene Glass's first thing was on, first meta-analysis was on class size because we will return to that later on. All right. Next question is, obviously... You're a pretty famous guy, John, when it comes to education, education research. Why do you think your research and your work has risen to such prominence? Well, I've, my career has been as a measurement psychometrician and the whole visible learning has been a hobby on the side. And up until around 2008, I think I was reasonably known in my measurement world, which is a very small world, and I was very comfortable there. I served a term as president of the International Test Commission, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I published nine books. The first book I ever published in the 1980s, I'm pleased to say, is still in print, simply because they printed 500 copies and they haven't sold yet. Um, I wished I'd known the secret for those nine books about what happened in visible learning. And once again, it was an accident. I don't know what the reason was. Like if you've seen the book, it's full of numbers. It was only at the last minute that I added those barometers because my wife told me how boring the book was. And so she invented that and added into it. I don't know if that was the reason. It Obviously, looking back, it came at the right time of the evidence boom. Yes, I'd like to be modestly thinking that I hope I tried to make a contribution to bring together a whole disparate area of notions. But Ollie, I actually don't know the reason. I'm very humble that when I go around the world and people come to sessions, I could spend my whole life and no one could care. The fact that they do, wow, what a responsibility. All right, well, we may jump into... Well, actually, before we go to jump straight into Adrian Simpson's arguments, as you know, this podcast is in many ways a response to the, the podcast I did with Adrian about a month ago. I was just wanting, I wanted to ask the broader question, which is, what does condensing a large amount of research into an aggregated effect size allow us to do? Well, the thing that intrigued me and got me going on this was that everyone I met in education, from a classroom teacher to an academic to a policymaker to a parent, knew truth. And... They had evidence to back up their arguments. And it just didn't make sense. How come everyone's right? How come every teacher has evidence, and they do, that what they do makes a difference to kids' learning? And so it was that, could I understand that phenomena? 
And then it made me realize, could I change the narrative from asking what works where the answer seems to be everything to what works best? And I want to introduce that relative notion. And the beauty of the synthesis of meta-analysis allowed you to do that. Now, quite frankly, that's the easy part. Collecting all the data, collecting all the meta-analysis, it's easy. The hard part, and that's what took me 15 to 20 years, was making sense of it. And it's the story underlying it that really matters. And sometimes people forget that when they look at the effect sizes and say, oh, that's it. They overlap dramatically. Mm. And the, the essence is, why are the ones above the average, why and how are they different from ones below the average? And that story is what I hope is the major contribution. Okay, so it helps us to, to work out what works best and it leads us to identify which stories are best worth our while to engage with. And in the philosophy of science that I hold, it leads to then developing a model which could be wrong. And so it needs further verification, further falsifiability, and that's, what I, that's how I think science progresses. Got it. Okay. Have you had a chance to read Adrian Simpson's paper? Remind me of this topic. The misdirection of public policy. Oh, um, yes, I have. Yes, 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 Great. Yes, yes. So you'll be familiar with these arguments then. I'll kind of recap each of them prior sure. to just for the benefit of the listeners and anyone who hasn't heard that initial interview. So the first thing, essentially Adrian was saying in the paper, he outlined three things which can have a significant impact upon effect sizes and they're not necessarily things that are associated with the intervention itself. So I'll, we can kind of step through them now. The first was unequal comparison groups. So the idea here was that depending on what you compare an intervention to, you're going to get vastly different effect sizes. So he talked in detail about one intelligent tutoring system that when compared to business as usual had an effect size of 0.25. When compared to human tutoring had an effect size of negative 0.25. When compared to reading materials had an effect size of 0.47. And compared to no treatment, so not teaching the students anything, had unsurprising a larger effect size of 0.9. Now, I noticed that the, I was looking at the Visible Learning Plus materials today, and I noticed that some of the new stuff does explicitly talk about what it's comparing to. So, for example, you have cooperative learning versus competitive learning and cooperative learning versus individualistic learning. But many of the, the studies still, or meta-analysis still don't, aren't explicit about that. So, to what extent is, could, or should unequal comparison groups be accounted for in your research? Look, one of the things... I would hope the critics are careful about is that they don't just look at the effect size and make assumptions. Many of them forget that it took me 20 years to understand what was going on and to look at those kind of things. Now, one of the sadnesses is that many of them, there is very few meta-analyses that make comparative judgments, very few. And so I think Adrian's criticism is quite reasonable, except that's not the status of the literature. Most of the literature is comparing an influence, comparing to not having it. And of course, we'd love to make those other comparisons. There have been a few people, Quinn did this and a few others over the years that have tried to make those comparisons, but that's not the status of our literature, unfortunately. Most of our literature is comparing one thing compared to not having it. Now, that's, that's a, a deficit of the literature. It makes my job easier, however, because most of the comparisons are with having something compared to not having it. Very few are of the nature that we're talking about. And yes, I would love to see more comparisons. But one of the other arguments I'd make is that by looking at now 250 different influences, you can start to make those comparisons and you can start to do that. The data is just the first step. The critics often think the data is the last step. Okay, so, so you're saying that this can be an issue? Unequal oh, of course it can. Right? There's lots of issues in meta-analyses and 
I just think it's unfair to say that I did not consider those options. Of course I did. Mm. Partly they're not there to make those comparisons. Mm -hmm. Certainly I made the argument very strongly that we need to make more of those comparative judgments. Mm -hmm. But again, if you go back and read the meta-analysis, that's not what they're talking about. Okay. Criticism is unreasonable. Okay, so uh, to summarize my understanding of what you're saying is that it can be an issue, but yes. due to the way that meta-analyses or studies are generally carried out, it's generally the case that they compare it to business as usual. Yes. Therefore, aggregating across makes sense. Yes, but you still have to be very sensitive to that. Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. All right, the second argument is range restriction. So this has, well, Adrian decomposed this into two things. The first is a statistical issue. The second is a differential impact kind of an issue. So in terms of statistical, the example we talked about in, in the podcast was if you run, for example, a maths intervention, and it has a moderate effect on all students in one grade level, for example. If you take before and after means at, divided by the standard deviation, you'll get one effect size. However, if you slice up your data, so you look at lower impact on low achievers, med medium achievers, and high achievers, calculate the effect size for each and then aggregate across them, you will actually get a larger effect size because you're dividing by a smaller mm -hmm. standard deviation. Do you think this is an issue that kind of can, can challenge these meta-analyses? Well, look, Ali, I could go back to the history of statistics and write the textbook about all the things you need to be careful with any statistic, including effect sizes. Simpson's paradox came out in the 1920s, which is what you're talking about. And so, yes, I can write an article saying, here's all the problems. That doesn't mean to say that they exist. And certainly, certainly in the work that I've been doing, I take the comment about splitting it up. Now, in the jargon, that's the search for moderators. And that is pivotal to what we do in education. And I've spent a lot of time and effort to try and find them. The fact that I couldn't find them, I think is a fascinating part, not because I didn't look for them. And so that criticism is an easy criticism to make, but show me the evidence where that is in fact the case. Statistically, of course that can happen, but there's very few moderators that make a difference to the overall conclusion. If they did, that needs to be screamed out from the front page, but they are just hard to find. Cronbach and Snow wrote a book in the 80s, Thick Tomb, looking for them and their conclusion. If they exist, we can't find them. The whole model of individualized difference depends on moderators, and it's fascinating, we can't find them. And so, yes, that criticism is very appropriate, and I can give you another 20 criticism of any statistic, and that's what we check for. And certainly, I did a lot of work and wrote a lot about checking for those moderators. So, yes, if you found them, his argument is correct. If you don't find them, his argument is moot. Got it. I feel like delving deeper into these arguments requires pulling apart meta-analyses, and obviously that's not something we're doing today. That's what I do. But, um, my, it's what you do. It's what you do. It's not something I've done. It's, oh, it's, it's a fun doing it. The other thing, the other issue with range restriction that Adrian pointed out was differential impact. So, for example, two areas where this is an issue is for tracking and streaming, where we see there's often a differential impact with low achievers or people who are streamed into low achieving groups and high achieving groups, and another issue is with class size, as you mentioned before. So, for example, in Visible Learning Plus, I was having a look this morning, a metric that's met, that's reported is class size, and it has an effect size of reducing class size in Visible Learning Plus is 0.21, and in Evidence for Learning, it's 0.19. But as you talk, as you said earlier, the effect of class size, you can't, you can't just say class size has this effect right. because it depends upon how, oh, totally. from which number of students to which other number of students you change it. So if you go from 30 students to 25 students, probably not much impact. 
from 20 students to 15, you're probably going to see some larger impacts. So I guess what I'm interested in here is it seems as though in an area such as class size or streaming, by aggregating across studies that look at different ranges, you actually lose the key finding of that research. So to what extent is it actually valuable to aggregate aggregate those results? Look, you're, you're 100% correct if that's what happens. Well, I just beg you to go back and look at the articles, look at the research, because that's not what happens. We look continually for those effects, those moderators. That drives us in this business. Like, does class size differ for five-year-olds and 15-year-olds? Does it differ in different subjects? Does it differ depending on the, the, the range of students you use? And I go back to the very first meta-analysis of Gene Glass, where he produced a kind of a non-linear relationship from 40 down to 20 in terms of that size of effect. This is the bread and butter of what happens within meta-analyses. And this is why the critics of my research go and look at the meta-analyses, and yes, I'm responsible for doing it at a higher level. But then they ignore the rich detail that says it is defensible to talk about an overall effect size of 0.2 for class size, which means that reducing class size enhances achievement. That's what a positive means. And then you ask, as I have done, quite extensively actually, why is that effect so small? When everything tells us it should be large. But I actually trust the evidence. It is small. And we can then go and ask, for instance, we know for, that the effects of class size on five-year-olds is greater than it is on 10-year-olds. It's 0.23 compared to 0.19. I can't get excited about that difference. But we do look at those things. So those who critics who make those comments clearly haven't gone back and look at the research in the visible learning, haven't gone back to the meta-analysis, haven't gone back to the original studies, where that's the bread and butter. No one starts by saying, I'm looking for an overall effect. That's a consequence of the research. So again, I think the criticism is of the method, not of the research. Okay. I'm just thinking about, for example, if we looked at, considered two principles, one principle of a primary school and one principle of a, a high school, when the principles come to the visible learning plus 2250 influence of student achievement achievement sheet and they're looking at influences and and the the high school principal says oh reducing class size of oh, 0.21 yeah it seems to have an effect but it's probably not what we're going to focus on and particularly if i don't have the money can you know if i have the choice to use the money for something else yeah and similarly the primary school principal comes and says oh reducing class size 0.21 maybe not something to Correct. to to look at however Maybe it could offer a lot more to a primary Absolutely. school than a high school. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just a little bit worried that having it aggregated into one one metric is going to reduce, as you said, you know, direct them to the stories to, to the stories. It's going to reduce the number of, for example, primary school principals that would delve into that story. Well, I, I did create that league table of now 250 influences, but as you could see on the latest one, it's not listed from one to 250 anymore because. People made the mistake of thinking that the effect size was the only answer. And if you go and read behind it, you'll find out that there are very few, for example, that make a different differentiation between primary and high school. There are some, and I'm quite clear about what those are. And homework, you've got to be very careful about. The, the effect is quite different in high school to primary school. Class size, it's not. And that's the detail. And that's the trouble with the aggregate one piece of paper is what's the story behind it. And I would hope that any principal who looked at that sheet would ask that question, what's the story behind it? I would want them to say, wow, that's kind of tiny effect compared to the others. I wonder why. And that's what the research is about. I wonder why. 
and I and others have done that research to try and understand why that effective class size is so small. But it is small. And if you look at the detail around it, it's small for almost any way you can break it up. Got it. It's about the story. It's about the story. Not this the is, numbers. This is good. It's, it's, it's feeding into stuff we'll hopefully touch upon, upon later as well. The third thing, and this is one of the mo- things that I found most interesting that Adrian was talking about is measure design. So he was essentially saying that if you measure the impact of an intervention based upon a researcher design test, that researcher design test is much more likely to be sensitive to the intervention than, for example, a standardized test. Therefore, areas in which it's more likely that tests are researcher designed are going to, by definition almost, show larger effect sizes than areas where that's not the case. So if we try to put this into context, for example, just looking at Visible Learning Plus this morning, areas such as rehearsal and memorization, they're probably definitely going to be researcher designed tests. And something like, and so you've got an effect size there of 0.73. And areas such as classroom management have an effect size of something like 0.35. So if people come to this sheet and they go, oh, well, memorization, rehearsal memorization, that's the way to go. As for classroom management, you know, that's half as effective. Is that is that a danger that this measurement design is kind of influencing the, the results in a way that makes it harder to interpret the findings? Yes. And Bob Slavin has just come out with an article showing the differential effects of the standardised and the teacher-made. And we've known that for a long, long time, and I discussed it um, within the various articles and books. I don't think, however, that's the biggest issue. I think there's a bigger issue. And that, and again, I raised it in uh, Chapter 11 of Visible Learning, so I think I was the first critic of my own work when I said 90% of the studies that in the meta-analysis of these books is based on surface learning, kind of narrow content, factual stuff. And I think that's a, a criticism of the research, but I also think it's a criticism of what happens out there because the research is based on what happens out there. We don't have a system in education where we take kids out and put them in laboratories. These are in the classrooms. And so given the sample size, I think even the 10% deep gives me opportunity to say something. But I think that's quite an unfortunate reflection on what happens. I think that's a bigger criticism than what Adrian's raising, even though that's in there. And of course, if you go back and look at the individual meta-analyses, some of them are quite extensively comment on that. And I comment on that. And yes, you do have to be careful about it. But certainly when you look at that and you ask the question, which is what the meta-analysis method allows you to do, does it make a difference? Yes, it can. Overall, not much. Because most classes don't use one or the other. They use a mixture. Most studies use a mixture. Like take the example you used of, what was the example you gave on the- Rehearsal and memorization. Rehearsal and memorization. That's often a mixture of teacher-made tests and experiment-made tests. And quite, quite often, not as much as we want, articles look at those differences. I think this is the point that I want to continually make. The questions Asian are asking are not criticisms of meta-analyses. Well, they are in general. They are opportunities to use meta-analysis to answer those questions. And I could give you another 30 that he missed out of meta-analysis, of t-tests, of ANOVAs, of regression. And they've been around for 100 years. Just bringing them out and writing them as if the original researchers didn't actually pay attention to them, I don't think is very helpful. Okay. I think that, in fact, before I jump to the next thing, something you mentioned there about the surface versus deep it was, is quite interesting because if we have a look at the, le- the league table, for example, we see things like, direct instruction and explicit teaching coming out on top. And th- there was a question from a listener of the podcast, Ben Gordon, and he wants to know, what are your views on Engelman's direct instruction? Are people surprised by its effectiveness when you explain it to them? And, and why is it not sweeping the world 
in his opinion. Okay, I'm not sure about that wording, but and yeah. I, and I guess this relates to the kind of test that we're more likely to give students, and it's hard to test for things like how students, you know, resilience improves when you give them inquiry learning and things like that. So, did you have a, a comment or something you wanted to say about yeah. about this? Look, when the book came out, the people from Oregon contacted me and were saying how pleased they were that direct instruction came up top. And I replied to them and saying, yes, I think it's unfortunate that most people misunderstand direct instruction. They think it's didactic teaching and talking. They think it's scripting and whatever. And I said, wouldn't it be great if you changed the title? I got a very icy response and never heard from them again. I think it's very misunderstood. Direct instruction, as I'm quite explicit in the book, requires teachers working together and planning. It doesn't require picking up a script and following it. It requires teachers talking about the impact on the kids. And those kind of messages, obviously, are very similar to the big visible learning story. And so I think it's a very unfortunate. Like I've, I've done analysis of Noel Pearson's implementation of visible learning and seeing stunning results on those kids. And if you actually see what they do, it isn't didactic teaching. It isn't overly rote learning. There's a mixture of things in there. So did you mean his implementation of direct instruction? Correct. Yeah, so you said visible learning. Oh, I'm sorry. But that's okay. Thank yeah. you. I did mean that. That's okay. Yeah. I'm not convinced of yet to see the light. He's still direct instruction. And so we've got to be very careful what that means. And that's what I have tried to argue continually, that it's not didactic. In fact, I struggle all the time to come up with a better word, and sometimes I've called it deliberate instruction. But again, that kind of implies the teacher's up front and it's all done directed. I also, in my limited time as a real teacher, I was a music teacher. I like the notion of orchestration. And if you ever watch a conductor, they don't talk. They let the music speak. And there's a kind of analogy there. And conducting an orchestra is a very deliberate act. And it requires a lot more than just the content. It requires emotions and mood and feeling. I'm getting carried away here, Ollie, but... Yeah, those kind of methods where the teacher is involved, and I think that came through very strongly in most of the things at the top. And some of the ones near the bottom, people get upset about like inquiry learning and problem-based learning. You know, we've followed up that and done a subsequent synthesis of learning strategies, and I think we're starting to unravel why that's the case. But the, 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 the direct instruction methods, yes, they are more effective for the content, the surface. They are also very effective for the deep, but it's harder. The problem-solving methods are very effective for the deep, but they need the content as well. And like the best analogy I can give you is problem-based learning in first-year medicine has an effect size of zero into negative. Problem-based learning in fourth-year medicine has an effect size of 0.5, because then the students have the knowledge to have the problem-solving. And so I think, as we're arguing now, that the differentiation we need to think about is how you differentiate the kind of teaching at the right moment. For example, we won't employ anyone on our team who comes to us and says, I'm this kind of teacher. I'm a direct instruction teacher. I'm a problem-solving teacher. Because I can't guarantee the kids are all at that stage where that's optimal. There is differential effects of different kinds of programs. And going back, it's no surprise that problem-solving comes out very low if 90% of the outcomes are surface. Mm. Yeah, and what you're talking about is the expertise reversal effect, which John Spellers Swell has done a lot totally. of work on. Totally. And it's and I, I actually think right. I think a um conducting is a great example because it's about how to have an, someone effectively conducting an orchestra, you need so much practice, so much deliberate Correct. practice, so much rehearsal that goes into that. And so there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes in order to bring that together totally. cohesively. 
So I, I yeah, that's it's probably a it's a powerful analogy. I guess what Adrian's arguments kind of brought together, or his main point was that effect sizes or ranking. I, I know you've, you've you've more recently moved away from ranking, yes. but ranking, but even even so, the fact that we've got the the effect sizes here on this table, kind of people are going to use them as a yes. as a as a guide for navigating this this content. So what Adrian was su- suggesting is that using D as a measure of an intervention's effect, when that when that D is so can be so influenced by what you're measuring, how you're measuring it, who's involved, things like that. He suggests it's a category error. And rather than it measuring the impact of the intervention, it's actually more a measure of the clarity of the study and of the experimental design. And so if we were to you know, rank, rank this information, we could make very clear inferences about the types of designs that we use, the types of tests that we use, and things like that. Well, I'm afraid you can't. Okay. And if you go back and do that study, you'll find that some of the studies that are close to zero have a remarkable clarity based on the kind of things he's talking about. And my question to Adrian is, what's the alternative? When you're trying to synthesize literature, yes, I don't want the one-pager to be the Bible. There's a story behind it. I want the story to be there, and I'm constantly going at the story, and I'm now writing, I think, my 12th or 14th book, trying to get the story out. I don't deny that it's based on effect sizes. But if you go and look at the work, not only do I use effect sizes, I use a variance around the effect sizes. I look at the moderators, and the critics ignore that. And they then create this belief system that it's all about the one page. It's not. There's a whole story behind it. Let's be fair here. Take the story. I think it's kind of remarkable that since I started publishing this, 1989 was the first article, no one's taken the data and invented a different story. That would be a dramatic advance, and I'd be the first to welcome it. People have criticized the method. It's been around now since 1976. There's lots of critics. Most of us are very sensitive to those criticisms and attend to them. I'm continually doing that. In fact, I spent a week with a colleague from Switzerland a couple of weeks ago, recoding everything to take into account some of those things. But the message, the story hasn't changed. The details might, but the story hasn't changed. And so I think you can take these messages. You can have a statement about public policy, about what happens in schools. And what keeps me going is the schools around the world that are implementing the story from this. Wow, that's exciting. In in terms of proving the rankings wrong, for example, how would someone do that? I don't think that's well, – you've got to be careful here. Like Since I published Visible Learning, I've now got another – almost double the number of influencers. And every time a new study comes out, like on class size, it can alter the average effect. Not by much, but in that case, sometimes it has a lot. Like professional learning, that has been a steep decline since around 1989, 1990. But that's because, and that's the key thing, what's the reason for it? That's because the earlier studies on professional learning used as their outcome teachers' beliefs about what happened with kids. Now they look at student outcomes. So the effect, down effect, is perfectly explainable. And this is the beauty of doing meta-analysis. It, asks, it allows you to ask the right questions. And that's the richness of it. And I've forgotten your question. Oh, bye. That's okay. Sorry. Oh, well, it was interesting nonetheless. All right. We'll, we'll come back to it. A year's progress. This is a, this is a very controversial. At least. At least, yes. I mean, in your, in your first forthcoming paper, which is entitled The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hattie, which I thought was nice, you, you say that 
Anything less than a year's growth for a year's input in, is utterly unacceptable. Yes. When I first came across the the idea of a year's progress or a month's progress, as evidence for learning calls it, I thought this is a great idea. You know, it clearly communicates effect sizes to teachers in a way that's going to enable them to, you know, decide on which interventions to look look at the stories in relation to, et cetera, et cetera. But I was a bit, I had my confidence rocked a bit when I read the paper by Hill Bloom, Black and Lipsy, which I'm sure you're aware of, where they look at average annual gain in effect size from nationally normed tests, which is said another way, looking at the average growth given what year level a student is in. And so, for example, in evidence for learning, a year's growth is equivalent to an effect size of 0.96 to around one. But in the work of Hill, Black, Bloom and Lipsy, that only occurs in from K to one and from grades one to two after No, no, which- no, no. That's a total misunderstanding of that table. Okay. Firstly, that is a table of what you would have called standardized tests used on kids and kind of narrow excellence areas, reading, writing, and maths. And it's yep, 90% of its content. And yes, you would expect, for instance, that the advance in reading between the ages of five and nine is a hang of a lot higher than the advance of reading once kids get to a reading age of 12. That's just common sense. That does not mean that teachers in high school can't get greater effects than that. If you're teaching panel beating or history or music and you're teaching the content of that, which is a hang of a lot more wider and variable than the narrow excellence measures from those tests. Mm -hmm. And this is why I'm deliberately saying at least a year's growth. And the next sentence is, and now we have to put some meat and meaning around that year's growth. And the answer is then not rushing only to effect sizes. It's looking at artifacts of kids' work. In having debates amongst teachers about what bringing along two pieces of work six months apart, three months apart, is that three or six months growth? It is asking and listening to student voice. There's a whole lot of richness behind it. The jump people have made from at least a year's growth to 0.4 is misleading. Now, I probably didn't help because 0.4 is the average from all the meta-analyses. It also turns out that if you take tests like Helen Dunn have done, like I've done, like I've taken the NAEP tests in uh, in the US, I've taken the No Child Left Behind test from most states. I've taken the NAPLAN from Australia, the SATs from England, the EASTL from New Zealand. And I've asked the question, what is the average effect from one year's growth? It's 0.40 in every one of those places every year. But the average is hiding a lot. And yes, you have to look at, in those narrow tests, what a year's growth looks like at five compared to 15. And that's why I'm moving towards know thy impact to get away from, it's not just an effect size. There's a nuance here that's really critical. And what I love to see happen is that we have the debates in schools. It's moderation with a new name about what happens. Because one of the other things you'll see is that the expectation teachers have for that year's growth, if a teacher thinks it's large and a teacher down the corridor thinks a year's growth is quite small, unfortunately, both of them will be very successful. We have to have that debate. And that's probably the most critical debate we have. Here's the other problem. In schools like Australia, you have at your school in Sunshine, thousands if not tens of thousands of measures of achievement. How many measures of growth do you have, Ollie? Sunshine's all about growth, actually. How many measures of growth do you have? I would say two. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where I'm arguing, certainly in my role here in Australia, is we have to resource schools to have better debates about that. And I want to see some resources for schools to have that so they can have the debates. Now, I'm being very careful what I say here. The tools won't decide the debate. It's the judgments that teachers make about what that year's growth looks like makes the biggest difference on kids' lives. Mm. Okay. 
maybe Tanya would like to respond to this because because evidence for learning, you know, you do have a set way and you do directly equate months of progress to effect sizes. So if John is if your work is moving away from equating effect sizes directly to months of growth on the aggregate, is would is it doing that? Y- yes, it is. Like I, I think effect size are part of the story. I think that the point four has been very useful for me to make the distinction between the comparison of things above and below. But when it comes to kids in classrooms every day, then those contextual factors can make a huge difference, both in terms of whether the t- test is narrow, whether the test is wide. And I think there's a lot more involved in how teachers make judgment than just test scores. I want them in there, but I want more. Tanya, how is evidence for learning treating effect sizes and months of growth? Sure. Well, we do have that direct conversion from the effect size into months of growth. But like John was saying there, we're very much in agreement that it really depends on the contextual factors. So when you're implementing that yourself within your classroom, it's going to be very different for you depending on where you are. And we're strong advocates, as John is, for small and big data. So you need to look and say, well, what does progress actually mean for that child in that circumstance? And be really individualistic about it. That's why we've got our impact evaluation cycle, which is trying to structure something, give teachers structure around embedding evidence into their practice. So looking at this and saying, not from a solutionitis point of view, but saying, look, what is a problem that I'm trying to overcome in my classroom? And then looking and saying, is there something that could be helpful? Having a deep dive into the research, not just looking at the headline figures, as John's advocating for as well, and then applying that and then measuring their impact thoughtfully and intelligently as, as teachers all over Australia do all the time. Got it. So if, there's, if there is such a high level of uncertainty about turning an effect size into months of progress or years of progress, and there's a, you know, a bit of uncertainty around effect sizes given various moderators, does not talking about years of progress just increase the chances, increase the uncertainty around a, a given impact? Well, maybe that's a good thing. So that, that's why you need the triangulation. Certainly, as was pointed out by Adrian, the misunderstanding of just using a league table by itself and ignoring the story behind it is a dangerous thing to do. And switching, as I have done, away from that league table much more to the know thy impact. And certainly the argument I made in the visible learning was about the teacher's mindset, how they think. And this really comes back, and I I would put to you that the notion of at least a year's growth really forces the debate about the teacher mindset and how they understand it. And that's certainly where I want to go. But I don't want to reside against what the data is telling us and how it's presented. And certainly there are multiple other ways of presenting it, and such as using the months of progress to try and continually to make meaning of what these numbers mean. Like basically an effect size is a standard deviation unit, but I'm sure most people, including many teachers, would roll their eyes if they heard those words. How do you actually put it into language that makes meaning? That's our job, is to make meaning. So there you said that you think that talking about a year's progress pushes teachers towards knowing their imp- Yes. Know that I impact more. Could it be the case that, I mean, for me, I, I feel like the, the way that a, a year or month's progress is interpreted by teachers is in an overly simplistic way. And I think that 
in many ways that we're trying to simplify things for teachers and be evidence brokers and things like that. But I think it also risks us simplifying to the point that, you know, it, it actually loses its meaning. And I, I'm worried that that- so let me, I don't want to do that either. Mm. So let me ask you, Ollie, you're a math teacher. Correct. How do you know your kids have made appropriate progress over the last three months? Well, I give students a weekly progress check mm -hmm. and I can watch their, if, if students get a question incorrect on that progress check, I will repeat it the following week. I get students to write reflections based upon things I've learned. But how do you know it's an appropriate three months growth? How do you know compared to a teacher down the corridor also teaching maths that you're making the expected appropriate growth or more? That's a great question. I mean, you would have the conversation with that teacher about exactly the things you're talking about now. Uh-huh. And that's what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. How do you get that collective understanding so that kids are not deprived because your conception of growth is so small and you don't expect much from the kid, whereas the teacher down the corridor may expect a lot more or vice versa? I agree. And it's, it's a relative concept. Correct. Which is why I think that it's confusing to make it not a relative concept by converting it to an effect size. But an effect size is a relative conflict. Standard deviation units away from not doing it. Mm. But it's if it's if it's relative to so many things, and one of the largest things is the year in which the students in. For example, no, no, no. Again, that's a misunderstanding, Ollie. If you use a narrow standardized test, yes, it is. But in your teaching of maths, and you teach high school, and you teach a year ten class, then you still can get 0 0.4, 0 0.7, 0 0.8 effect sizes. Because you're not measuring a narrow concept, you're measuring what you're teaching. So don't make the misunderstanding that it always comes back to narrow. If you if you administered a national standardized test like NAPLAN to your students between year seven and year nine, on average, you get an effect size of about 0.24. I've done the numbers. If you do it between years three and five, you get an effect size of 0.56, which replicates the kind of studies that Hill and something we were talking about before does. But that's not what you do. But it could be. I guess, I guess, I guess my question is like, for example, like school leadership, right? So they come along here and they're like, oh, yep, a year's progress, that's effect size of 0.96 or- Well, that's too simplistic. Or whatever. And, I and, wouldn't do that. Okay. But I'm just worried that this is how people are understanding Well, that's it. why we have to. That's why it's going to keep me in business, keep telling the story. Beauty. It's not that simple. Okay. Got it. It's not that simple. No, there's a story. It's the story. My rhetoric all the time. You ask my PhD students, every meeting I have with them, what's the story? Not what's the numbers, what's the story? And that's the same here. And that's why I tried to get above the data to tell a story. And some of the critics forget that and they go back to the numbers and they make these kinds of criticisms, ignoring the fact that they're so damned obvious, many of us have pointed them out many, 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 many times. Criticize the story. Got it. All right, let's move into more directive territory here or more and, and also more positive territory hey so we're very positive here today uh it's all very positive no so in this forthcoming paper you talk about how you'd love people to use your work as tri as they use TripAdvisor, for example let's start off what do you mean by that and how do you want teachers to use your work there's a debate in australia right now as we know about evidence and i think that's a very contested word there's evidence that I've produced from the various research articles. There's also evidence that teachers have from their experience of being teachers. Both are legitimate forms of evidence. What I want is to critique that. And critique means positive, as well as openly asking about whether that's sufficient. And certainly, in many ways, 
there is so much evidence at the moment, we kind of don't need a hell of a lot more evidence. Like I've got 300 million kids in this sample. Do you really need a hang of a lot more? The problem is the implementation of that evidence. And that's what I think the biggest issue, the dissemination and the interpretation. And the notion of a trip advisor is that a teacher might say, or a school might say, this is the destination I want to be. I would hope they'd start with a very good diagnosis of what's happening at the moment. For example, when many people say to me they want to implement visible learning in their school, my first question is, and what is the problem to which visible learning is the answer? Mm. And in many cases, there isn't. They just want another thing, another bauble on the Christmas tree. Or to improve more generally. Yeah, but how can you improve more generally if you haven't gotten a good, good diagnosis? And then when you've done the good diagnosis, what are the high probability interventions? And that's kind of like we do when we do a trip advisor. What have other people done? They don't want to go the next step. And it's like, let's say there's 30 schools around Australia and they're introducing getting rid of streaming in the high school, they're introducing a new homework policy, they're reducing class size. I want to create a forum where those peer principals can get together and talk about their implementation, how it's going, what are the barriers, what's happening. We aren't very good at that. We can't say to a principal, you're on your own. This is your school. You do it. But how do we get them to use the evidence that others have had by implementing these strategies? You've got these resistors. Oh, this worked for you. That, to me, is also legitimate evidence that we need to harness and increase because I constantly come back. It's about the mindset. It's about the judgments that teachers and principals make. How does the evidence inform that? If we, for example, just come up with yet again Another database of academics writing stuff to tell teachers how to do things is going to make very little difference. We have to use both forms of evidence and triangulate them. And like, wouldn't it be great, for instance, when teachers are introducing a new homework policy? Collectively, they're talking to each other because teachers are huge users of social media and so are principals. They're talking to each other and they find a barrier. That's when someone could come in and say, well, here's what others have done. Here's some research on this. Here's some other implementation strategies. That to me is an exciting addition to our world. And so when I talk about evidence base, you don't need to have a lot more. Quite frankly, you can pick up visible learning and read it, even though some people might not like that. You can pick up others. SVA, has uh, Social Ventures Australia, has a stunning site with an incredible amount of evidence on it. But that next phase, and if you read the Gonski report, particularly if you read the report that's released at the same time as a, an appendix of the Gonski report, on the evidence base. That's what it talks about. So, diagnosis, schools diagnosing. Implementation, sorry. Have a forum for discussion. Diagnosis, interventions, implementation, and evaluation. Mm -hmm. Teachers are to die for. So you're gonna have to expand on that for. D, diagnosis, I, interventions, implementation, E, evaluation. Got it. Probably not the best uh, one, but you might not forget it, Ollie. That's okay. So where's the TripAdvisor come in? Sorry. I'll well, this is where the notion where I want teachers to look at reviews of kind of like reviews and work with others, a bit more than TripAdvisor, and work with others as they are going through the process of implementation so that evidence can be at their fingertips. Not only the evidence from the research, but the evidence from each of others is about how they're implementing new policies. And let's create a dialogue about evidence, not just to dump it. Got it. You know, this is great. Diagnosis, implementation, evaluation. And this is all about the no-lie impact, which is which you've been going on for, about for ages. And it's, from what I can understand, your main, the main point that you're trying to get across here. So today I went to the Visible Learning Plus website and I, went, I clicked on the research tab. And 
And on that page, there was one download. And that one download was this page of influencers, which has names and effect sizes. So given this is the number one download from that page, how do you, where in the, this diagnosis implementation evaluation process does this fit? And how would you expect a teacher to use this sheet? Like this, Visible Learning Plus is now owned by Corwin, not me. Yes, I did produce this and they use this. Um, but clearly my story is what they are also doing as they work with schools to actually implement it. And this is just the flag of the data. And in many ways, it's a kind of a temptation. Here's what the data is. Now, ask your question, how do you implement it? And they've got a massive amount of resources. At any one moment, we are working with close to eighty to 90,000 teachers. And we're building up in a massive amount of evidence about how you implement this kind of thing. And wow, we're learning a lot. It ain't easy always the time and all the time. But we're getting much better, much smarter about how we can implement this because we want to look very much at the learning lives of kids. And yeah, we're still, we're still working on it, but the evidence is pretty impressive. And like what we're doing is it's kind of simple in a way. Nearly everybody who goes into teaching, why did you go into teaching? It's fun. Wrong answer. No, it's true. I guess I could say I wanted to change the world, but it, honestly, it's fun. Most people, 92%, Ollie's the 8%, go in because they want to help make a difference to kids. And it's fun doing it. All I'm doing is feeding that appeal, helping them maximize that impact, and have fun. Mm. It's interesting because... I know I'm in trouble here because he didn't say got it. <laughs> I don't know, I said it's interesting. It's interesting because the answer, your answers generally move away from the aggregated effect size. Oh, absolutely. There's a hang of a lot more to it than that. I drew a parallel this morning. So one of Dylan Williams' phrases, which I really love is, and this is from Embedded Formative Assessment, when students get a comment and a grade, have you heard this one before? The first thing they look at is the grade, and the second thing they look at is someone else's grade. Okay, I think people can intuitively understand that that's, that's probably the case. So I tried to modify that for... For, for what I was thinking about here, which is that when teachers get a description and an effect size, which we could now change to when teachers get a story and an effect size, the first thing they look at is the effect size. And the second thing they look at is the effect size of another influence. Do you think that's true? Yes. If that's the case, why, why do we make these aggregated effect sizes so easy for teachers to find if it actually, if it detracts from Delving deeper well, into the story. Be careful here. Does it detract? Yes, I can see how it can, but it's also tempted. Uh, tempts people. Like you explain this to me. Why have the books sold over half a million? They want to know more about the story. This is kind of the temptation, and then they look at that, and many of them say, "I don't believe it. What's going on here?" And that's the hook. Then they go and look at it. If I actually produced a text up the front page, you wouldn't have gone to the download and looked at it. And so, yes, I am doing like classroom teachers do. How do you get people interested to find out more? And so I would be horrified if they just stayed and stopped there, and some people do, and some of my critics do. But I think that's very unfair to the corpus of work that not only I've done, but others have done to make meaning out of the stories. And so I don't resile from the fact that the data is the data is the data, and I'm quite proud to say this is the data. I would hope that it was the starting point, and it has proven to be in many cases. But in some cases, it's not. And so, yes, Dylan is right. When they look at the grade, they often then don't look at the comment. That's unfortunate. But if I put the comment up, they probably wouldn't look at anything, unlike a student assignment. 
Hmm. But I do put the comments up, and hence sometimes I, I got into trouble for in England last year with the comment that teachers should not be researchers, and it was the splashed in the newspapers. Now, I did say that, but they left the second half out. Teachers, I'd rather teachers not be researchers, I'd rather them be evaluators. Now, that's the problem of trying to soundbite stuff, as you get misinterpreted. But the other side of it, people do read the stuff, and I'm delighted they do go beyond the headlines. It's interesting. So my understanding is the way you're framing this is, is a hook. It hooks people. And, and I mean, no one can dispute that because it has been a hook because you've engaged yes. so many people. I guess if that's the case, then why do people get so caught up about the hook? And, and why, why is the understanding of many people that your major work is calculating aggregated effect sizes and ranking them? Well, I'm not sure that would be. The way I see it, and I've probably got a very self-confirming bias here that they, they don't do that. Yes, some people do that, but, but I would hope there's a hang of a lot more to it than that, and I'm going to continue to try and keep telling the story, but I won't deny the hook. What I would hope would happen is that people would ask the questions. Like, one of the things that drives me is, particularly as an academic, is critique. And if Adrian Simpson wants to have a critique, I, I think that's just the way it works. I have no intention of replying to those because they're legitimate questions that he's raising. And I'm successful if others come into the debate and have this. If no one comes into the debate, then both of us will be ignored. And unfortunately, that's what often happens in our academic world. Academia thrives on critique. So the fact that people look at this and they make critique, good luck to them. If that's where they want to go, I think they've missed the point. I think they've missed the story, but that's their right. They can do that. I have no troubles with that. As long as they're critiquing the ideas and not the person. That's how academia survives. Cool. To continue the the hook parallel or the analogy or the analogy of using this in the classroom, I think a big mistake that many teachers make when they design a lesson or an activity is maybe they do focus on the hook. So yes. I was listening to a great podcast, Mr. Barton, Matt's podcast the other day, he interviewed a teacher from the UK called Danny Quinn, and she talked about how she did this lesson. He, he always asks teachers, tell us about one of your biggest failures. And she did this lesson which when she carried it out in the first place. She thought it was great. She was teaching fractions. She had mandarins. She was, you know, pulling up the segments. Students were eating them, have a great time, super engaged, really powerful book. And a few years later, one of the students came up to her in the, in the yard and, she, and Miss Quinn said, how, how are you going, you know, today, Teresa or whatever? How's maths going? And Teresa said, oh, Miss Quinn, it's not very good, you know, these days. They don't do anything exciting. Like they don't, they don't have mandarins like you did. Then he said, oh, okay, that sounds, that sounds good. You know, it makes me feel like a good teacher. But then she said, Teresa, do you remember what that lesson was about? And Teresa said, no, but, you know, we had mandarins. And I guess that gets at the heart of what I'm a bit worried about here. When we make the hook, when we make this the hook, people remember what they think about. And what they what they think about is the effect size. So when they walk away, the thing that sticks in their head is feedback 0.7, not feedback. The importance is to get people to think, for example. Could that be the case? Ali, you're a very seductive interviewer because I have resisted forever using the word hook. And this is the first time I've ever used it. And I probably am now regretting using it with you because when I actually wrote Visible Learning for Teachers, I had a chapter on the hook. And then I realized that sometimes the hook is best at the end, not at the beginning. After you've seen the concept of maths, you do the awe and wonder to demonstrate it so they help remember the concept because your example of Danny is absolutely the case. Mm. And so... Yeah, I want to be careful with the word hook. I want people to go to the story 
I want them to look and ask those kinds of questions that has been asked many times about the moderators and the influences and the effects. Take feedback. Yes, it has a very high effect size, but I want people to realize that also a third of feedback is negative and understanding that is the critical part. And that's what I'm still researching and working on. And that's what others are working on. And it's how any model creates new and different ways of looking at questions. Coming back to, as we were talking, you know, the notion of data, it is there. I do want people to be tempted by it. I do want people like Adrian Simpsons and others to critique it. And so people are, as he has tried to point out, more aware of it. I would hope that when they make the critique, they acknowledge the, my awareness of that, which many of them don't, because I only see front page. But it's like the class size question, which I get asked probably more than anything. I'm not going to resolve from the evidence. It's there, understanding it, explaining it. Like I've done a lot of work to try and explain why that effect is so small. I've looked at the different moderators, and I think this is the kind of research that needs to be done. And it's, a, it's kind of like Andrew Schleicher from PISA. His comment one time was that 20 years ago when they had meetings of ministers of education, every minister demanded an hour to tell them what wonderful things they're doing. Now that's not the case. It's kind of like we, we probably forget that in Australia, NAPLAN was introduced by a minister because he was sick and tired of every state saying they were perfect. It wasn't for any other reason initially. They probably had other reasons intended. And same with teachers. They always say, leave me alone, I'm doing a good job. I want to question that in a very positive way. And I want to use the evidence to help question that. I want to give examples of high probability interventions. And notice how I say that. They're high probability intervention. Mm-hmm. Just because it's a high effect size doesn't mean if you use it, it will be have the same effect size. I want you then to ask the question about your class, which is why I want teachers to be evaluators. I want teachers to know their impact because it's that local implementation that matters. And the research I did was based on everyone else's work, but as it got more questioned and more known, I have moved much more into what does it look like when you implement this? And it does come back to how teachers think. All right, we're back on the good quality sound, hopefully. So thanks for your patience, listeners. If two, A couple of things. If you offer a simplification, can you blame people for taking that simplification? That's one thing. And the other thing is, this isn't my opinion. I think that not offering the simplification of the aggregated effect size would make people more likely to remember the content of the lesson to sure. continue the analogy than than offering it. What do you think? Well, yeah, it's, it's uh, the I think it was Einstein. It's attributed to him. We want to make things as simple as we can, but not simpler than they are, or something like that. And it's the same kind of notion here that if I had produced the visible learning book without some kind of more succinct summary. It would have zero impact. In fact, the first version I wrote of it was 500 pages and it was full of data and moderators and wow, it was resplendent with numbers. And when I got to the end and I realized that I was writing it for about two people in the world, I threw it away. And it was hard to do because that was where all the conditionals were, but no one would have had any impact. I think the barometers were quite inspired. Um, As I said before, my wife invented those. It was a way of trying to make it more simple, more attractive. And the whole idea of making it more simple and attractive, like with this one here, is to tempt people to go to the next step. And it's worked. Yes, it's come with a price, but I think the price has been worth it. And as many schools now are going beyond that, they're asking these questions. Like I probably get five to 10 emails a day, people saying, well, tell me more about this one. And 
That's the power of putting it. And the other message I wanted to get across loud and clear was changing the narrative from what works to what works best. Wow, this does it. Got it. I said got it that time. Yeah, I know, <laughs> and I rejoiced. All right, another curly, hopefully. So a question from a, a listener, George, who's a maths teacher in Melbourne, is that your rankings differ quite a lot from EEF and the US What Works Clearinghouse. I, f- I found that interesting and I, I started looking through them started looking through them today. And in, in many cases, there's a lot of agreement. So, for example, with metacognitive strategies, it's 0.6 versus 0.62. Feedback, it's 0.7 versus 0.63. Collaborative learning, 0.34 versus 0.7, 0.41. Uh, what's this comparison with EFF? This is teaching and learning toolkit from oh, yeah. Australia. But for some of them, for example, like phonics instruction, visible learning rates it at 0.7 effect size and teaching and learning toolkit, it's 0.35. How could, how could there be such a big difference there. It would just be different inclusion criteria for the meta-analyses involved. Am I right, John? hope so. I'll hand back to John now. Yeah, there's, there's that, certainly. But the other thing is, is I keep adding. I keep adding new effect sizes. And when EFS and SVA created their table, it was probably based on the data that was available then. But the rest of the world doesn't stop, and they add more studies. And I've added more studies. Like, this is one of the common criticisms I get is that now you've added another 800 studies, some of the effect sizes have changed. Well, that's the nature of research. Like I gave the example earlier of the professional learning changing. And what I look at when they change is I look at you know, what happened when the different studies come in, as, as Tanya was talking about, what's going on? And I write up and make commentary about that. And so, yes, you are going to get some differences in, in terms of the effect sizes. And I try and keep up to date. Of course, producing and publishing a new article or book every time I add more meta-analysis is not very exciting for anyone. And that's why we're trying to get more adaptive on, on a website to make the data available to everybody. And so they can look at it and they can say what happens. And so they can help answer these questions. But I'm not surprised that some of them, most of them won't change. But some of them will as more things. Like some of the meta-analyses are not based on many studies, which I acknowledge in the book. And as a new meta-analysis comes out with larger studies, you'd expect some changes. But some of them are based on very, very large number of studies. Cooperative learning is a huge research area. So another meta-analysis in cooperative learning that comes up with a different average effect size, that will raise eyebrows, and I hope the author explains, but it's very unlikely. Mm. Okay. Another one I was looking at this morning in a bit more detail that I found a bit confusing was matching style of learning which yes. I understand to be learning styles. Yes. Is that correct? Now, my understanding is that learning styles don't really exist and the evidence for the matching hypothesis, that is the fact that if you match instruction to a student's right. supposed learning style is basically you know, null. So why is the effect size there 0.31? Look, this is, a, as you say, a really interesting area because the learning styles often overlaps with a lot of the learning strategies. But then you go back to the one that's probably the most well-known, the kinesthetic, a spatial visual mm-hmm. learners, and the argument that there is a matching hypothesis. There's been a number of meta-analyses that show there is not the case. Mm-hmm. You've got to be careful because there's about three or four meta-analyses actually done by one group that show incredibly high effect sizes. 
And I, in the first book, didn't call the quality issue as I could have, as I should have. Uh -huh. And when you go back and look at those meta-analyses, the quality of them is woeful. They misinterpret an R-squared where they include socioeconomic status and prior achievement of 0.95 as an effect size. It's not. It's got nothing to do with the matching hypothesis, to do with the variables they put on. Mm. And so invisible learning for teachers, I called it and said no. And so we've got to be very careful when you look at matching the learning styles. When you, This is one where quality matters. Now, let's go back to the argument underlying it. The notion that you can classify kids into one of those three classifications is nonsense. And often Howard Gardner gets uh, criticized for doing that. He never, ever, ever, ever said that. In fact, he's been very clear you shouldn't do that. His argument in mine is that teachers should use kinesthetic, spatial, and visual methods of teaching and variably not classify kids. And as Christine Ruby Davies has shown, is the teachers who classify kids into kinesthetic, spatial are the ones that have the least impact on kids. And the kids who are kinesthetic and spatial, firstly, they're the ones that most need the verbal and numerical reasoning. But moreover, it's just not totally unreliable to classify kids into one of those others. So this is an area where it's not surprising the effect size is very low. But unfortunately, some of the meta-analysis that are called learning styles include some learning strategies which have quite high effects, and they mix them up. Like dual coding, for example. Yes. And if you read the writing, I'm quite clear that this is the problem in this area. But the visual, spatial, kinesthetic stuff, it, three strikes, it's gone. It should be gone, gone, gone. Unfortunately, it's not. It still reinvents itself. And so this is, again, Ollie, the story that matters. Mm. And you're right. The fact that you raised it as a dilemma, I hope you now do exactly what you did. What's going on here? And explore it. And that's the exploration. And I think that's a part of the explanation for why it's happening. Why don't you take it off the, why don't you reduce the, the, the ranking or Watch something? Watch that space. All right. Good. And in relation to that, it was just, it was just funny. I, I had a look. I think it was the point directly above was individualized instruction which is basically, my, under my understanding, one of the main push points of Gonski 2.0? No, um, no, I got into trouble on the weekend when I made that comment about I wish they'd never used the word personalised learning. It's, it's, another, it's another code word, and it means different things to different people. For many parents, it means individualised instructions. For many teachers, it appropriately means that you tailor the instruction and differentiate it to the kid. Unfortunately, the meaning's so variable. Like, great teachers understand the dynamics of groups and allow for differences. They don't allow for individual differences and then form a group. That's not how it works. A lot of your teaching you do in groups, you do in whole class. And then when things happen, you allow for individual differences with Dave and Pauline and, and Tanya. And that's what it's about. Is that personalized learning? Yeah, it's an incarnation of it. But there's my problem with the word. It means everything. Okay. So in terms of when, when it's reported, in as individualized instruction yeah yeah it typically means teachers who want to have individual les lesson plans for each individual kid they want to have tailored structure for each individual kid and it's no surprise it doesn't work because you can't survive doing it you don't have the time to do it when you have a class of 15 let alone 30 kids Definitely. you need to allow for the commonality as well as the differences and the other thing is kids learn from each other and you do that probably every day mm. individualized plans don't allow for that which is why they're very low got it would you be happy to answer some questions from listeners around the world? Because you had some people send some through. I'd be delighted. All right. Some of them are a bit challenging. <laughs> so this one's from Linda Graham. You know Linda Graham? Our Linda Graham. Yes, our Linda Graham. Oh, excellent. Q -U -Q -U she will challenge me. She said, 
we, and we've touched on this before, but it, it takes kind of a different different angle. What exactly does he, John Hattie, mean by a year's growth for every year of teaching? We've covered that. Does this include all students or does it have a particular population in mind? If the former, how is it to be measured? If the latter, does he realise he's perpetuating the status quo? Run that by me again. If it's the latter? If it's the latter. So what, what's the latter? Does this include all students or yes. does he have a particular population in mind? Oh, okay. No, look, I mean all students, and look, let me clarify here. I deliberately use the words at least because some students need more than at least. And the reason I'm phrasing it that way is every student, no matter where they start, deserve at least a year's growth. So if they're struggling near the bottom, they need at least a year's growth. If they're gifted near the top, they deserve at least a year's growth. And it's the articulation of what that means is the hard part, but that's the work. And it's trying to change the debate, particularly in Australia, where we've had this debate in Australia about great schools or schools where there's high achievement. And I don't think that's necessarily correct at all, because we have so many students, so many schools where their kids start high, but those students don't get a year's growth. And those are what I would call the cruising schools. Mm. And when you analyze the NAPLAN and the PISA results, we have too many of those. But our equity debate says, no, they're okay. Our parents say, they're okay. They have high scores. They have high achievement. They get good scores on NAPLAN. They get into the universities they want. But they're killing our nation because those kids deserve that year's growth. And the other side of it, we have many schools in Australia where kids start well below average, where teachers can get two or three years' growth for a year's input. Wow, they should be esteemed. They should be honoured. But they're not when the annual debate comes out in our current debate about high achievement because they say, oh, they're still not above average. I think that's just dishonest, it's misleading, and it's not reinforcing the expertise that we have in our system. Got it. This one is from someone working in Education New South Wales. It's a political question. As the chair of AITSL, the National Teaching Organisation, how is it not a conflict of interests for you to also be benefiting commercially from the use of visible learning and its licences being sold to schools and education systems? Well, certainly... Yes, I am the chair of AITSL. It has nothing to do with visible learning. It's not involved in marketing, any of that whatsoever. And I know my board and the minister would be horrified if I had a conflict of interest and used my AITSL role to in any way promote the visible learning work and that. And I don't. It's at arm's length. It's not run by me. It's run by a commercial company. They do it all. They have their, their costs, etc. The only The only role I have is I get the data to do quality assurance that they're doing a good job and they're changing the learning lives of kids. And so I'm very, very careful about that. So when a school opts into visible learning, they're buying it from Corwin. They're not buying it from me. Okay. I have contracts all over the place to make sure that that's the case. Got one from Adrian Simpson. He called this an impish question. What would you think of a GP who had a visible health plus poster on her wall, which said that patients existing health condition had the potential to considerably accelerate the patient's health. Sorry, Adrian, I have to get that one again. Patients? The patient's existing health condition had the potential to considerably accelerate the patient's health. Now, what he's saying here is the fact that we're saying that students' prior achievement has the potential to considerably accelerate student achievement. He's, my understanding, he's suggesting it to say it doesn't make sense that to say that it can be used as a an influencer or... It doesn't help to tell teachers that if students are already doing well, they're going to keep doing That's well. That's not what it says. It says kids who start off with higher prior achievement, whatever their prior achievement, high or low, 
that's a reasonable predictor about where they're going to go. And we can influence that, sometimes by disrupting those kind of notions. And so if a physician had that on their wall, I think they have missed the point of what that effect means. And so I probably wouldn't go to that physician, nor would Adrian. G'day. Thanks so much for answering these questions. It's really amazing. My name is Dan. I'm a TC at Melbourne Uni. And just on that, and I think you've given a good explanation about the know thy effect, but I think the, the analogy was about you wouldn't do it a top 10 lists of medical interventions because, you know, one would be chemotherapy, one would, one would be, you know, Panadol, and it wouldn't work for every kid. Sure. My concern is that there isn't enough information in the public sphere about what effect sizes work and when. So, you know, like an effects, it might be super effectful for a particular bunch of kids at a particular developmental level, and then another effect size might be completely different and might not work at all on a different bunch of kids. And I feel like that information is hard to come by. Just like, yeah, I wonder if you could comment on that. Oh, look, Dan, you're probably right. It is hard to come by. And I, all I can say is read, read the story, read the books, which is a very flippant answer, but that's what I continually want to work on to say that. And certainly your argument about different works of kids, different influences on kids, this is why I overemphasize this notion of know thy impact. I want you to know that impact on different mm. groups of kids. I want you to know. And the argument I have about know thy impact, it begs the moral purpose question. What do you mean by impact, Dan? Who has is gaining that impact? Who is not? About what? And to what magnitude? And that's the mm. theme. So I'm continually asking that. And I want to help you answer those questions because right. that's what the story is. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're really they're really important points. I guess my my concern is that like teaching strategies that might have a really powerful effect with some groups of kids and then, and they don't have a, 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 an effect size with some kids, they kind of get left behind because overall they have quite a, a low effect size. And so th- that knowledge, that teacher knowledge, which has been developed for you know so much so with yep. with a particular bunch of kids, I'm, I'm scared those strategies are, g- are going to be lost. Oh, look, Dan, I go back to the earlier comment. The information on that data sheet that we've been talking about are probability statements. Yeah. When you implement them, I want to put the emphasis on you. I'm delighted you chose high probability ones, but what is the impact? Now, you could choose a high probability intervention and not have the impact. You could have a low probability intervention and you can have the impact. That's why I want to switch that conversation to say, yes, and for which kids? And it may be, as you said, kind of kids you described, it could be others. It, it doesn't usually work out, as I'm sure you're agreeing, as simple as these kinds of kids. It's this kid and that kid. Yeah. And what I want you to do when you find out that you're not having that impact on that kid, I want you to change what you're doing. Yeah. I want you to be an adaptive expert. Yeah. I don't want you to keep doing it. I want you to have those multiple ways of doing it. But I'm not a fan of eclecticism. I don't want you to have just multiple methods. The common theme is I want you to have multiple methods to emphasize that impact. And I want you to debate, you to debate what impact means, yeah. preferably with others, so we can have that rich, ripe conversation. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. Sarah Helm. Hello, Sarah. Sweden. She sends her regards. Hello, Sarah. She asks, she's got three questions. What do you, what do you think are some of your main achievements? Oh, Sarah. I love Sarah. She sends me articles. She sends me comments quite regularly, and I very much welcome that because I'm a bit of a magpie and that I love data and information, and she's very good at telling me what happens. And so I hope that's the answer to you. No, that's not the answer to your question, Sarah. I can't get away. What am I managing? I'd like to think that I have challenged the narrative. 
I've challenged the narrative of structural interventions into schools. I've challenged the narrative of achievement as opposed to growth to achieve. I've challenged the narrative about what works. I've challenged the narrative about how we use evidence, and particularly that last discussion Dan and I was having. The degree to which I'm successful, I'll leave up to others to, to a judge. And certainly from my point of view, in this business, the world keeps being reinvented every day, every year. So you're never going to get there. But I'd like to think I've done that. The thing that I'm most proud of is this year. I was so proud that I've now graduated my 200th thesis student. I'm very proud of that as an achievement. I'm very proud of not only my family and my four boys, but my grandchildren and my puppy dogs. I'm very proud of those. Give another rounded side of it. And I'm very proud of the fact and quite humbled by the fact that people like you are prepared to come and have this kind of conversation and listeners are prepared to listen to it. And I hope that I am challenging and allowing and open to critique because that's the essence of what I want to do. Fantastic. Next question from Sarah. Well, she'll come back and tell me if I got it right or wrong too. I'm sure she will. Good. What's something important that you've changed your mind about over the years? It's a great question. You probably don't like the answer because I continually change my mind about many things because I'm quite driven by this notion that we should only be, we should primarily be looking for evidence that we're wrong. That's the essence of the Karl Popper falsifier ability. That's the difference between science and non-science. And so I'm continually looking. And like, I genuinely thought when I started this, there'd be a hang of a lot more influences below zero. I thought that, that there would be a lot more simpler ways of explaining the whole distribution of effects than there is. That's probably not answering your question though. Help me guys. Well, I mean, I could say one thing, you've stopped ranking things. Yeah, that's true. It, it worked and then it got misleading, so I stopped it. One thing I did get wrong in the, that I've learned is that it's interesting when you work in the more political space, that certainly Adrian's talking about public policy, et cetera. I didn't realize that teachers and educators so often deny their expertise and claim what made the difference was the kids or the curriculum or the assessment or the conditions. And it's very, very hard to hear teachers saying they cause learning. One of the findings from my work is that we have stunning schools and stunning teachers out there, and that's what keeps me going. But when you have the debates, it's hardly ever about that. Like I, I find it fascinating to look at websites of schools and see the picture they have on the website, and it's always about the pretty kids and the pretty buildings and the pretty sports and the pretty cultural events. And it's very rarely, if ever, come to the school we have great teachers. We deny our expertise. And I think that's fascinating. And then when you, you, you go to that next step and you look at the political space, I naively used to believe that the politicians used this evidence. And of course, they use the evidence to what influences the voters. And so that's why I am now spending a bit more time trying to, in fact, I've written a, a version actually with my son on visible learning for parents. How do we convince parents? that the kind of thing that makes the difference and the kind of things that some great schools are doing, which is focusing on the learning, is worrying about that growth to achievement notion. How do we convince them that's what they should be supporting? They should be investing in teachers. They should be investing in expertise. But if you have a cake sale at your school for a computer, they'll come. But if you have a cake sale for professional learning, they'll say, nah, not going to do that. It's a very distorted view out there. And so I was wrong not realizing that I had to spend more time on that. And I hope 
as every t- most academics are paid by the taxpayers, they do speak up about their expertise and inform the parents about what's happening in schools now. The expectation on schools compared to 40 years ago is dramatically more. Despite that, we have some dramatically powerful and exciting schools, and that's what we have to do. The other thing that kind of where I got wrong, I never realised, like, Ollie, I'm, I'm actually not bad at searching literature. And when I search literature to ask how many studies have ever looked about how you scale up success, I can find six. We always work uh, from the assumption that things are bad out there. Australia's in terrible shapes, and here's my answer to fix it. And what I want to do is the opposite. I want to say, let's look at that great stuff that's happening, and how do we scale it up? And so I would hope that the contribution I can make is to raise that question, how do we scale up success? Like a lot of reaction to the Gonski report last week, we were already doing it. I think, yeah, that's true. Probably 60 to 70% of schools are. How do we capture that and grow it? Heaven help us if we come out with yet another report that says everything's disastrous. We have to switch and do something completely different. That's denying the excellence we have. Is that enough, Sarah, to be happy? That's good. I think Sarah will be happy. But she does have another question. And that is differences between then and now. We've seen some of the biggest, or what have been some of the biggest changes you've seen in education between when you started your career, and you've just touched on these, and now. And for an educator starting out today, what are some of the wicked problems that you think really need tackling? Yeah, I, I probably have stressed some of these predicting how Sarah would ask that question. Like, if I go back to when I went to school in the, the 1950s and 60s, we, we were taught reading and writing, very happy with the schooling I went to. We were known by our last names. There was no expectation the teacher would have a relationship with us than the kind of teacher-student relationship we're talking about in today's world. There was no expectation that they would be worried about the social conditions of me and the emotional things. That was the family's issue. Wow, has that changed? I'd say for the better. But that means the expectations are a hang of a lot higher on teachers than they were then. I think that the way in which the teaching profession is changing, like I look at Australia, for example, and I look at the national standards for professional, start that sentence again, Australian professional standards for teachers. Pauline knows that very well because she was involved in developing them. Thank you. If you look at the evaluations out there, teachers in their first 10 or 15 years, it's in the water. They know these things. They think it's normal. They think it's normal for someone to come into their classroom and assist to see what's happening on their impact on kids. That is a dramatic change. When I was a teacher, no one came into my classroom. No one was expected to. That's not true. I had an inspector one year, one day, or half a day. That was it. But I was given, I was expected to work alone. And unfortunately, some still are. Some teachers still think a good teacher is a busy teacher. People are now questioning that and say a good teacher can be an efficient teacher and they can work with each other. And so I think there's some really exciting things happen, but the expectations have gone up, the need there for quality to gone up, and it is happening. And so I think it's a massive change. It's interesting when you look at policy, however, we kind of reinvent it every now and then, and we have a pendulum swing in various dimensions. I think it's fascinating that if you go back and ask who was the first politician in the Western world to ever talk about the government being responsible for outcomes, the earliest I can find is David Blunkett in 1998. Before then, schools were resourcing. And it's interesting with the Victorian budget recently, it was all about resourcing. That has been the traditional role of government. And so don't assume that as governments got more into the 
performativity side of it, that their serial stay that way. It may do, it may get more. So that those are the kind of changes I see and the kind of challenges we have on our plate. If I have any influence with my Axel hat on, it's to re- reintroduce the narrative of expertise. It's to get the profession to take responsibility for its quality standards. I'm terrified one size fits all. I'm terrified that a national test for teachers will come into play. I'm terrified if there's one way of doing things, but I am excited if we can get the, the profession to have more say in its professional standards. You alluded to this in a comment before, but it, when you mentioned Gonski, but to what extent do you, do you agree with the state or the line that was in that, that was something like the industrialized system of schooling is broken and needs to be replaced? And in relation to that, do you think we will or should see more of a change from current models to more of like, for example, a Templestowe model? Do you think, do you think that's broadly applicable? Do you think that would be a good thing? Do you think it would be a bad thing? Interested in your opinions. Well, c- certainly one size doesn't fit all, and the Templestowe model has a very important place. Like my bigger concern is the narrowness of high schools towards selection for universities. I think it's extremely undesirable. And I know many teachers at the moment treasure the current model we have because that's what they like. But I think the biggest crisis I see in Australia is about, about one in five kids who start high school don't finish high school. And when you look at the evidence, particularly Hank Levin's work as economist of education, the biggest predictor of adult health, wealth, and happiness is not achievement. It's years of schooling. Mm-hmm. So how are our schools inviting? And I go to Templestowe, and I've been to Templestowe, and it's a very inviting place to learn. And I've been to other schools that are also very inviting places. But one in five is just not good enough. And so I'm delighted that Gonski asked the question, can we look at the year 11 and 12? And I hope it would be broadened so there are other ways you can be excellent. Like there are many kids who go through high school who want to be a panel beater, a barista, a water polo coach, who are not served by a current system. They can be excellent in those things and they can learn ways to be excellent. And I know in my work in New Zealand where they got rid of the notion that the upper years of schooling was about selection for universities. Now, firstly, the universities were furious, but they didn't take long to work out how to do it. And by changing the question to certify what kids can do and the degree of excellence they do it at, within three years, that retention rate went from 80 to 93%. That's a dramatic change. We can do this, but we need that national debate in our federalized system. That's really inspiring what you've just said there, because I'm really interested in teaching strategies which value the funds of knowledge that kids bring with them to the classroom and the cultural capital. I, I was a little bit, when I was looking up in your, in your book, you didn't actually go into cultural capital or funds of knowledge. I mean, I know there's lots of things in, to look at in education. And I know you're always there's always going to be something and everyone's little tidbits not going to be included. I, I do understand that. But I'm just interested in your th- thoughts about what you're talking about, so notions of, of what kids are, str- are, are really good at and have a, no- a lot of knowledge, knowledge about and valuing that in the classroom. Yeah, and certainly, Dan, you know, I've had some of the early critics were quite concerned and one of them said that my next book should be on that. Well, I'm going to leave that to others. I certainly said in the book that it comes down to precious knowledge and the debate about what precious knowledge is. And I'm a great fan of Michael Young's argument that we send kids to school to get that which they wouldn't get if they didn't go to school. And that builds on the capital that they bring. So it's not just reinforcing the capital. Sometimes we use culture against some of our kids and we don't see there is precious. Now, it's a massive debate about what precious capital is. 
I don't think the answer is the Australian curriculum, which is 2,500 pages long. I think that there is a much better debate to have about what cultural capital is. But the beauty is every teacher in most schools have that debate every day by the decisions they make about what they teach. Like we've recently completed another meta-analysis, another meta-synthesis. Visible learning so far has been mainly about achievement. There's a group in Germany that I'm associated with that are looking at the effect of a motivation. We just did another meta-synthesis on how you learn. And there's massive richnesses about that. I would love someone to do the meta-synthesis on physical and nutrition and how schools can impact on that. And there's obviously, you can get down to the details and we have, we've produced a book on visible learning for maths, for science, for literacy, trying to say, we have to merge those things with that. So yeah, I am trying to write some of that and I hope some others come into it, but that whole debate, you're absolutely right in terms of what they bring to school, what school's responsible then for adding value onto it is absolutely imperative. We might move into some closing questions. Sure. What advice would you give to your first year teacher and or researcher self? The first year teacher, I would say, build networks, have colleagues, go on to the ATSOR website and download the apps where you can ask a highly accomplished teacher a set of questions and by the afternoon they will have answered it. There is expertise out there. Have discussions about moderating the notion of what a year's growth looks like for a year's gain. Make sure you realise a good teacher is one that has an impact on kids. You don't have to be busy. It doesn't have to take over your life. Enjoy the passion of what you're doing. The thing that's most stunning, Ollie, is that like, when I stopped being a dean in my previous institution, I, I lost all any influence I had over teacher education. So I moved to looking at teachers in their first five years. Wow. You've never met a hungrier group of people that want to answer these questions we're talking about today. And I've challenged everyone and I challenge your listeners. If there's an entrepreneur out there that wants to set up a business that sets up workshops, professional learning for teachers in their first five years, you can't come to it if you're not in your first five years, they'd be millionaires. The hunger is enormous. I don't want them to learn that if you can do it by yourself in your own classroom, you're a good teacher. That's not how it's working. And so... It's kind of like the research on every time a child goes to a new school, the biggest predictor of success is if they make a friend in the first month. Mm -hmm. Not too different with teachers. How do you work together? So what happened when you became a brand new teacher? Are you working in communities of like, people like yourselves? Do you have these discussions? Like this, the, the healthiness, particularly in the secondary schools, is often a function of how healthy the subject associations are. Because that's when you guys get together and have these debates. What was it like for you? I mean, I was lucky because, I mean, I got my job or heard about the job opportunity through a friend who I went through uni with. And then I managed to get two other friends' jobs at my school as well. So we've got a fantastic support <sighs> group. And also I try to create opportunities like this for teachers to get together. And Twitter for me especially has been a – I didn't have Twitter for my first year of teaching. And I noticed a massive difference in my motivation to teach. But <laughs> by engaging within that community. So I definitely agree with you. For your first year research yourself. It's about the story. Develop a story, critique the story, look for the evidence the story is wrong. Don't get obsessed about the method. Yes, method's important, but it's not the end of the story. Meta-analysis is not the answer. It's the story. It's the story. It's the story. But be open, always, for looking for evidence you're wrong. 
a question we often ask our guests is, who do you go to for your educational information? Do you follow anyone on Twitter? What journals or email lists are you signed up to? Or whose books should we read? I do have a Twitter account. I have 12,000 followers and I've never tweeted. It may surprise some of your listeners that I probably do have a little bit of OCD. <laughs> and my worry of getting onto Twitter is I get obsessed by it. And so I chose not to. I also find some of those media, the critics are more personal and that's none of my business. I'm not in the slightest interest as an academic in personal criticism. And so I don't want to go there. I have a lot of, I'm now in a luxury position, partly because of this work. I have a lot of contacts around the world that are very good critics of my work. In fact, next week I've got a Danish philosopher coming who's an incredible critic of my work and the luxury that he's prepared to come and have that debate with me and almost diametrically opposed to how we see the world. That's the luxury I have. I have quite a few of those people. I meet up with the Jim Knights of the world and the Jenny Donahues, the people who are coming through, who are very good critics. Say, John, it's not like that. It's like this. Have you thought of it this way? That's the luxury of the position I'm in is that I have some of the best critics in the world that to do that. Yeah, I'm an avid reader. I read a lot of journals. I read 150, 200 novels a year. I love the reading side of it. I'm always looking and someone sends me a query that often leads me down the tunnel of looking for that. But let me go to the one that probably is the most important. I mentioned before my PhD students. I think it's an incredible model where PhD students pay to come to university. They invest deeply in their topic. They teach me and give me information and query me. And I get paid to do it. What a luxury. And so the fact that I'm surrounded every day by my best critics, is an absolute luxury. And that's what keeps me going. Sounds like a great job. It's wonderful. I love it. Well, so if you're looking for a first tweet, feel free to tweet this podcast once it's out. <laughs> Where to next for John Hattie? What, what are you really excited about? Right at the moment, like I'm really excited about the work we've been doing in the science of learning. We won a major contract a few years ago with ACR and University of Queensland to set up a science and learning centre. It's gone extremely well. It's got a great future. I'm also working with a colleague, Adrian Pickerley, at the University of New South Wales, going back to my roots, actually, from a small country town, trying to set up a centre of rural and regional education across Australia. And one of my missions is that in five to ten years, we'll have five to ten academics, for which that is their focus, rural and regional, because that's every mile you go from downtown major metropolitan cities in Australia, it's not a pretty look in terms of what's happening. And the argument we're making is that despite that, there are some stunningly successful regional rural schools. And that's where we're starting with them and building a dashboard of what they look like. So we know what good's good enough. That is exciting to me. Um, Keeping writing is exciting to me, PhD students. But Ollie, I'm also starting to retire. I've done 21 years as a dean head of school. I've done enough. I've given back. Uh, I've got grandchildren. I was a music teacher and my wife bought me a piano for Christmas. So I'm going back into the music side of things. I don't think I can stop doing what I'm doing, but I am going into a different kind of world for me. And that's very exciting. And how we, my wife are going to work together, do things that she has her career. I've had my career and it's the time to bring us back together. That's exciting. It does sound exciting. Last question, any calls to action or things, you, things that you would like listeners to go away today or after listening today and do? I'd love them to say more often than I do, got it.
because that means they were listening. But the most important thing, and it's very, very simple, is to ask that question. Know thy impact. John Hattie, thank you for your time today. It's been an incredibly edifying conversation. We've been going for almost two hours, so you've been very generous with your time, and we look forward to seeing how you support teachers to, to die more in future. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do it. Had to do it again. Sorry, but really, thanks. It's been great. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with John Hattie. As I'm sure it'll be apparent to you, the discussion on effect sizes is by no means settled. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, Evidence for Learning and the EEF partnered up recently to produce an article in response to the Adrian Simpson episode. And we were lucky to hear from the lead author of that article, Tanya Vaughan, in this episode too. Adrian Simpson has indicated he'll also be putting out more work on this topic soon. So watch this space. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. In addition, if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts or reflections on this episode, then please send through a tweet or an email. It's always lovely to hear from listeners in response to the show. If you feel so inclined, I'm always grateful for donations through www.patreon.com forward slash ERRR, which help me to cover the costs of room hire and audio production. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.